We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm through. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? Pretty good, man. Good morning. How are things? Good. Good morning to you. It's very. It's sunny here. Every time, I'm very. Uh, I'm very like like if there's one rainy day and then the sun comes out, I'm like, wow, the sun's back. It's been so long, even though it was just a fucking day. Like apparently, I take rainy days way way harder than I ought to. Yeah, I've become I've. Uh, really redeveloped my childish understanding of of how to be in the world over the last year. So like every sunny day now, I just open the window and sit by it. And then I sit there and do the same shit that I do every day, which is just like make puns and slack and wait for an idea to happen. But it's like, I'm like, you can't waste this, man. You only get so many days like this. No mask, uh, partly cloudy. Yeah, we had a block party and I, uh, and we weren't wearing masks. We didn't have to wear masks. We were all vaccinated. And it was, I think it was like 8 or 8.30. It was similar to when I saw you the weekend before. Mm-hmm. Around 8 or 8.30, I was like, I was all talked out. I was like, I don't, yeah. I don't know how to continue doing this. Usually, you, you know, over the past year, usually by this time at night, I'm stoned and in a recliner <laughs> like playing really everybody's golf. I really right now. I yeah, need to yeah, be in my yeah. chair. So, but no. No, instead I was like having to actively talk to people and like trying to like think of things and like having to like drag myself into podcast host mode for normal people and it was not <laughs> just honking we're back at people randomly yeah. to get yourself psyched up it's tough. That's, whatever that's, works man whatever whatever gets you across the line that's what i should do i should like if there's ever a conversation flagging i should just we're back we're back let's like, take a break yeah <laughs> also we had the thing um i don't know if you ever had this when we were in elementary school i would always mysteriously go silent like in the room, like at 20 and 40 past the hour. And someone said, oh, that's ghosts passing overhead. And ever since then, I've always believed it, even though it's complete bullshit. That, I'm going to start looking out for that because I have never heard of that. But anytime uh, that like you hear a th- thing about ghosts as a child and carry it into your early middle age, like I've, I don't know, I want to have that experience. I definitely like take liberties with it. Where if it's like if it's like quarter past, I'm like, well, that clock could be five minutes yeah. early. Ghosts like, early. Ghosts. Yeah, they just do whatever they want. That's they close shit. enough to the ghosting hour. It's true. Ghosts have no bosses. No one's telling them what to do. Would I talk to a guest, David Roth? A ghost? A uh, ghost? <laughs> a guest and a oh, ghost. Oh, that's better. Ooh. That's way better. Actually, here to haunt us with tales of the uh, future apocalypse. It's this week's guest. It's journalist and author of The Ends of the World, Peter Brandon. Hi, Peter. How are you? Nice. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. This is a a rare treat. I was telling Drew before the show started that this is a a rare occasion where I get to go on a podcast I actually listen to. Um, And it's a little bit like kind of like a poltergeist feeling like getting sucked into the TV. So the ghost theme might be. Might be apt in this case. Yeah. It's a it's a dream come true. Everyone yeah, grows up. They're like, yeah. what I what I'd like to do when I grow up is I'd like to be on a podcast. Which <laughs> right. Who wouldn't want to be trapped in my weird office with me at my yeah. standing desk while I'm like, that's right, Drew. Well, who doesn't want to try to fill time talking about ghost clocks? I ask you. Nobody. <laughs> Everybody wants to do that. Anyway, Peter wrote The Ends of the World, which came out in 2017, was critically acclaimed, and detailed the five mass extinctions. Uh, that happened on Earth before our mass extinction, which is due any second. I'm very, very excited about it. But it, um, the book is, I want to have you on because I wanted to talk about, I wanted to sort of just go macro with the podcast for a moment because it's very easy right now in in our lives to, you know, to, 
you know, to, to look at everything on the ground level because that's where we live, right? So, you know, I, I wake up, I look at the news, I look at the Twitter feed, and I'm like, oh, everything is shitty again. Nice job, world. Um, but one of the gifts uh, that you have as someone who writes about geology and someone who writes about, uh, you know, the whole of Earth's history is, you know, if you look at it from a, a much, much, much further remove, uh, then it becomes something less uh, stressful and more uh, existential and more and more interesting. Like even even when I'm thinking about the downfall of man, if I'm looking at it as an anthropologist and someone who's at a remove from humanity, even though I'm very much part of it, it's intriguing to me uh, how mankind is this very, very, very young species. And I, I believe you wrote about in the book where Dinosaurs lasted on Earth for 100 million years. We've only been around for, what, 150,000, Peter? Yeah, so, I mean, if you count birds, which you should, that sounds like something just kind of cute that paleontologists say, but birds really are dinosaurs, which means that they've been around for over 200 million years. Um, so it's not really a fair fight where we've been around for, like, a fifth of a million versus, like, 200 million, or 245 million, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's just a completely different scale. Uh, and it's funny, like, I have heard that my book is, like, in some ways it is very scary because um, it's about, you know, modern climate change in context in this like deep time geological context. But there is something consoling about kind of just swimming in the, the, you know, the ocean of time that this, this planet has existed for. So I start the book kind of to just kind of set some context that I love. So like geologists have all these mnemonics for trying to figure out just, or trying to think about how deep, deep time really is. Um, Cause it's one of those things like distances in space or like quantum mechanics where you can't like, we just weren't evolved to think in these scales. So, right. Uh, yeah. So like my favorite example is like this, this guy at um, Robert Hazen uses the example that if you imagine every footstep you take is a century, how long does it take to get to the beginning of like earth history? And, you know, you take one step back and the history of this podcast and the defector uh, disappears and world war two and world war one happen. And the Ottoman empire exists when you take one footstep. You take 20 feet, like 20 footsteps and you get to zero BC and you pass a lot. And then uh, after about like 80 footsteps, there's woolly mammoths around and stuff. So you think, okay, it can't be that much farther of a walk, walk to the dinosaurs and the trilobites and stuff. But in fact, you'd have to walk for uh, 20 miles a day for almost four years to cover the rest of Earth history. <laughs> Holy shit. So, I mean, that's the, you, you really have to just like open up your mind at the beginning to even like comprehend like any of the things that I really talk about in my book. So, yeah. And in somewhat weird ways, it is kind of consoling to just think of ourselves as this little blip, but you know, we really only get this one moment in time and we're fucking it up pretty bad. I find it easier as I get older, the idea of dealing with that type of insignificance. I think that that like really troubled me when I was younger, I guess just because I didn't know like what my life was going to be like or, right. or, you know, where I would be or what the world would be like. And, you know, it's not like at this point, like I can just completely draw a straight line from now until whenever it is that I cease to exist and enter uh, the the ocean of time. A good ass phrase that I, I can't believe uh, somehow Drew or I did not mention in the context of like an NFL preview on a previous <laughs> episode. Yeah. But well, go ahead. No. Well, I was just going to say, like, especially like I've really only been radicalized in geology in the last few years, I would say. Um, I grew up in New England where it's all kind of just boring granite. Uh, you know, there's some people who would think that's cool, but the first time I really saw like strata and fossils and stuff out in the Midwest and 
out in the West where I am now in Colorado, it kind of blew my mind. And ever since I've kind of been um, just obsessed with it, but especially now as our lives get more and more kind of like uh, hyper divided and like the news cycle so fast and it's really easy to get invested in sort of short time scales. It's been like almost therapeutic just going out to a rock outcrop and just contemplating these sorts of scales. So yeah, Anyways. any little bit of perspective goes a long way. I yeah. absolutely agree with that. I mean, it's weird well, yeah. to like steer this back to like Twitter bullshit or whatever, given <laughs> yeah. the enormity of what we're <laughs> yeah. talking about. But yeah, like taking a cycle or two off is not meaningful in any like it won't change your life, you know, to do that. Yeah. And yet I'm very afraid to do it because like what if what if a guy is eating beans in the movie theater and a teenager <laughs> makes fun of him for doing it? And I don't know. And then I show up at work. And everybody's like, did you know about the guy that was eating beans? Yeah. And I don't. Well, what's interesting is, uh, Roth, you, you know, not like when I was a kid, like I fear death and, and, and insignificance, the idea that, you know, that, that, you know, that I don't really ultimately matter and things like that. And then you get older and then that suddenly becomes a comfort, um, where, you know, the sort of, you know, it, it's, it feels like a bit of absolution that, okay, you know, that you, it, your life is not significant on a cosmic scale scale. It's very significant to you. But ultimately, you're not going to, uh, you know, you, you won't have, you personally will not have destroyed the sun by the time you've passed. So that's good, you know? It's like, yeah. So it takes so, a real load off. Like, it, it's sort of easier to enjoy a Mets game where you're like, oh, just, I'm probably not going to trigger a mass extinction event during the time between uh, Miguel Castro's appearance and Trevor Mays. <laughs> also, Peter, yeah. I, um, I, so I took rocks for jocks in college because that was, everyone was like, Oh yeah, it's the easy one you take to fulfill the distribution requirement. I was like, okay, and then I took it, and then it was hard. And I was like, oh, I hate having to memorize all these fucking rocks. This blows. And like, we had a cool teacher. Like, he was stoned all the time and played hockey, and that was cool. But like, I didn't really like geology. Always struck me as the most boring of the sciences. Yeah. But, but now, like now that I have a firmer grasp on geology, and and now that I watch Aerial America, like I'm much more. I'm much more fascinated. Like I'll, you know, I'll look at a mountain range and I'll see the strata and you're essentially seeing the Earth's anatomy. And that to me is very, very interesting. And that's, you know, that's why I I was, I gravitated towards your book and toward just basically having a better idea of what I'm looking at when I'm looking at the ground. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the way we teach this stuff, I mean, just science in general, it has to be like, we must be going about it all the wrong ways. Cause like, as a kid, I was obsessed with dinosaurs and in my spare time, I'd read like Jurassic park and a brief history of time and stuff. And then I got to high school and it's like, okay, I memorize parts of the cell and, and like smooth ER and rough ER. And it's just this rote kind of yeah, learning same. that doesn't take advantage yeah. of like my natural curiosity at all. I feel and terrible it, about it too. Cause like yeah. that was when my brain was good. I was interested exactly. in cool stuff. And then as yeah. soon as I get to high school and I might actually be able to learn something, they're like this whole thing, right. just like put this in this. And then, yeah. like, uh, write about what happened. Right. So we don't capitalize on people's, like, innate curiosity at all. Like, teach them, like, get them in on dinosaurs and sort of the anatomy of the earth stuff that you're talking about. And then if you want to commit to this field, then you can learn about, like, Bowen's reaction series in geology or, like, minerals and stuff. Stuff that they teach you right up front, kind of as a way to, like, weed people out, which I think is not the right way. It's, like, get people <laughs> in and then maybe weed them out. Don't do it right front loaded like that. Um, but yeah, yeah I'm no, the same way. I took I took a rock a geology class in college, and it was like, it didn't do anything for me. What was it that that turned you on to the field after that? 
So I was always, uh, so it's funny is I would, in my spare time, I would continue to read books about this stuff, um, sort of like popular uh, accounts, like uh, T-Rex and the Crater of Doom, maybe the best titled book ever by Walter wow. Alvarez, the guy. Is that an good academic name. book or is that like uh, a comic it's, book? It's like an, <laughs> it's like an <laughs> academic press book that's well written and it's by the guy who basically discovered that an asteroid hit the planet and wiped uh -huh. out the dinosaurs. Um, so I was keeping track of this stuff and then I was becoming a journalist and writing about climate change and um, overfishing and coastal pollution and things like this. And I did a fellowship at this, at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts, which is kind of like, I feel like it's kind of underrated. It's kind of like the NASA of the oceans, um, but it doesn't get that much press, but it was this. Would you say it's sneaky underrated, Peter? I would. It's on my <laughs> yeah. pantheon of uh, state-supported scientific institutions. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Has Although, to be. yeah, if there was a Scripps person here, they would. There's like an there's like an East Coast West Coast rivalry. Yeah, we should have but a, an oh, embrace, really? an embrace <laughs> debate head to head on it. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I respect the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, they're known as the Hooey Buoys. Really? Yeah, Woods Hole Ocean. Yeah. Anyways, um, anyways, I did this program for like science journalists where they would they kind of match you up with scientists, and I left that fellowship intensely afraid of this thing called ocean acidification which I had kind of heard of before, but they scared the crap out of me about it. And it was kind of the first time I heard that uh, climate change isn't just this thing that's theoretical in the future on models, on computers, but there's actually record in the, in the rocks of the planet running the sort of experiment that we're running on it today. And uh, so this is kind of a, a effective path towards like uh, persuading like deniers because they've never heard this. They think it's all just like, oh, our models. How do they perform? But it, like, if you know how to read the rocks, you can go to specific layers in the rocks and piece together how much CO2 came out of the ground and how the planet responded. And in my book, I talk about, you know, events that were literally the worst things that have ever happened in the history of the planet. And they're from big CO2 emissions doing the same sorts of things we're doing today. So I just thought that was a cool way into the story. What were those, those uh, triggering events? Because like this one, I think part of what I always feel like is hard to get your head around with climate change is that first of all, that it's happening. And second of all, that is happening gradually, you know, that like, yeah. so when you think about this stuff, you think of like T-Rex and the fucking crater of doom, yeah, you know, like something yeah, yeah. cool and cinematic and kind of right. like faintly Roland Emmerich. -y. Yeah. So what's crazy is that, um, you know, it seems gradual because we live on human lifespans, but what we're doing right now is almost unprecedented in the geological record. Um, so the hey, go us congratulations yeah right so the asteroid is I mean it's kind of a shame that the most recent and the most famous mass extinction wiped out the most charismatic animals in the fossil record and it was a weird space rock because none of the other ones have to do with that the rest of them are these crazy volcanic events that happen over thousands of years and eject lots of CO2 into the air and make it really warm on a similar or slightly slower scale than what we're doing today so while it might seem pretty fast from our or slow from our perspective, like it's about as fast as it can happen um, in terms of geological history, if that makes any sense. Um, should I take comfort in the fact that life continued through those extinctions or should I still be utterly horrified? I mean, I think it's both. Uh, we are, you know, for better or worse, stewards of the planet right now. And it's kind of embarrassing that we're just doing such an awful job and we kind of only get this moment to be alive to... Um, you know, be an organism on this planet. So it's kind of pathetic from our standpoint, or at least the people who are responsible for putting all this CO2 into the air. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you shouldn't worry about the earth in the long term. Like in 10 million years, everything's going to be fine. There's going to be lots of weird animals around. But, uh, you know, we don't live on 10 million year timescales. So if you're worried about your kids and your grandkids, which you sh- obviously should be, then yeah, it's definitely something to be pretty concerned about. I actually don't worry about my kids. They're on their own, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. Pretty, they seem pretty resilient. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I raise them to be self-reliant. So if a volcano explodes and covers the earth in two miles of lava, that's, yeah, that's really a them problem. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I'm going to file that one under, under you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The other thing was that I, I was reading the book. Uh, it wasn't just a, an asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs, right? Because didn't they have the, uh, the insult of a volcano also erupting? Like yeah. right next to them, that to, so to like the, really kicked them in the nuts. The deck was so stacked against dinosaurs, but I mean, if you're going to be that successful for that long, you really need to get like roll snake eyes like 20 times in a row to get wiped yeah. out. And yeah. So at the same time, or around the same time that a rock the size of Mount Everest hit the planet going 20 times faster than a bullet, uh, on the other side of the planet in India, <laughs> enough lava was erupting out of India to it could have covered the lower United. 48 United States in 600 feet of lava deep. Um, so, so metal. I mean, scientists are still trying to tease out what the relationship is between the volcanoes and the extinction and even the asteroid and the volcanoes because there's one theory at least that the asteroid kicked the volcanoes in overdrive. But yeah, dinosaurs had, man, they had a rough go of it right there at the end. What if the asteroid had landed directly into the caldera of the volcano? Mm, that's a good question. That would that have, that would that have stopped? Yeah, would that have made things worse, or would it have sort of canceled each other out? Or it's like that sounds like some real complex theoretical geophysics that I'm not. <laughs> we'd probably still have. We'd probably be working with dinosaurs, working happily alongside them. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing. Right. I can't imagine a way that the world would have evolved where there aren't podcasts. But maybe just one of either Drew or I would be a dinosaur in that scenario. Yeah. I. Uh, so I, I read your book after I had read a piece in New York Magazine by David Wallace Wells about, um, about global warming and essentially how we were that, – that there, there was a case for optimism. And this is very, very relative speaking, that, that a two-degree increase across the globe and limiting to that was achievable. And in fact, that there were signs that humanity was on its way – uh, you know, toward succeeding in that regard. And it would not, uh, you know, a two degree rise in global temperatures would be absolutely catastrophic, but not apocalyptic. Yeah. And that we could ma- essentially manage things from there. And I believe the term was like, ah, I, I hate, I'm going to get it wrong, but I think the, the term was adjustment, like as, as opposed to prevention. Adaptation. Uh, what was it? Adaptation. Adaptation. Yes. Yeah. That, ad- that, that we are already sort of preparing for adaptation, that we could manage adaptation rather than prevention. So, and yeah. then I read your book and I was like, oh, well, shit, now I feel, now I feel more depressed and now I don't, now I don't, now I don't no, know how to feel. So, no, 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 how- no, I think, like, I do think there's a risk in writing and talking about this stuff in appearing too fatalistic and giving people the impression that like, it's, it's too late or something like that. But I mean, that's totally not the case. And in fact, it's the opposite. This is, in some ways, it's a very scary way, scary time to be alive, but it's also, in other ways, one of the most exciting times to be alive, kind of ever, um, because we like we still have chance to divert sort of the human asteroid from the planet. Um, there's definitely some warming that's kind of baked in, and yeah, two degrees doesn't sound like much, but it does lead to some pretty catastrophic stuff. Um, yes, 
especially if you're concerned about biology, like coral reefs and stuff are going to be kind of on the ropes at two degrees. But yeah, I mean, we have this brief window in the next few decades where kind of everything has to change. And, you know, the future isn't written. Uh, and in fact, I did, right before I came on here, I saw this kind of amazing headline about this Dutch court forcing Shell to reduce their emissions by like 45% um, in the next few years or something. Um, so I don't know, it seems like things can change very fast and they have changed very fast in both human history and geologic history. So I, I think before people get too fatalistic and resigned, um, this is kind of the, our window to act, if that makes any sense. Are there, um, apart from the things that we as humans can do to, if not prevent it, at least uh, minimize the impact of what's going on, are there natural processes that also could essentially just happen to save our asses by coincidence? Um, they're probably not going to completely save our asses, but yeah, there's, I mean, the ocean has been saving our asses for a while now. Um, it has absorbed most of the CO2 and most of the heat, um, from like industrial activity over the past couple hundred years. If it wasn't around, if the ocean wasn't abs as absorbing as much heat as it has been, I thought there's some crazy calculation where the temperature would have already gone up by like a hundred degrees Fahrenheit or something. Jeez. Um, so we have this huge, uh, resource that we're just kind of like abusing, um, but at some point the ocean might be like, if you just force it too hard, uh, it might become a CO2 source. Like it's, it's not a, it's not an inexhaustible thing. Um, and there's a lot of ways that we could kind of be recruiting natural processes like soils and, uh, you know, mangroves and oyster reefs and th like, there's ways that we can recruit nature to help us. Uh, very carbon. Um, that sounds like a delicious solution. In yeah, the oyster one is yeah. a, a personal yeah. favorite of mine because yeah. like, all of like baked into your question is the idea of being like, is there something cool that might just like happen that would make it so I don't have to do so much different? <laughs> that, that, that was my yeah. question. That really and for was me, my like question. oysters, this has been like a big thing in, I, I mean, I know it uh, in Maine that there's a lot of that type of aquaculture. They've done a lot of it here around yeah. New York and it's like, it's worked, you know, like yeah. it's done a lot to make the, I guess the East River is really like an estuary and not a river but it's like much cleaner in large part because they've like tried to sort of cultivate that type of thing. Totally. Yeah. There's the billion oyster project in New York where they yeah. like, because the pre-colonial uh, like New York estuary would have been kind of this like paradise of just oyster reefs that. Um, and so like in Chesapeake Bay, I think there were like oysters filter something like 30 or 50 gallons of water every single day. And the Chesapeake Bay used to kind of be this crystal clear, um, uh, bay with dolphins and manatees and crazy, uh, crazy life. Um, and it was filtered every three days by the oyster reefs there. And now it takes like over a year for the whole bay to filter. And it's like this murky place with like, they're so proud of their crabs. It's like the only thing that can live there. Basically. Yeah, it's like the last life that <laughs> yeah. can survive. It's like, yeah. It's yeah. like a post uh, catastrophe species that is like, it's got, on. it's got a shitload of jellyfish in it now too, which yeah. sucks. Cause yeah. you yeah. know, it, cause it's brackish water. You can swim in it. It's usually warmer than the ocean. Right. Then you're like, oh, this is awesome. And then you see like a jellyfish around you and it's suddenly a horror movie. And you're like, ah, oh, no. oh my God. But there's, there's fossil reefs in the Chesapeake Bay where the oysters are like a foot long. And there, there's people that study those. Um, and it's just can kind of can my, you eat a foot long oyster? You is could. That okay? I, I think it's just kind of unappetizing. It would be like this big gooey steak. So like, yeah, it's like a, like a gooey duck, like those, <laughs> oh. those terrible clams that just look like a, like a weird phallus sticking out. Well, of yeah, that just looks like, that's just a dick. That just looks yeah. kind of big. I mean, I went on a, I took a tour of an oyster farm um, in Massachusetts and this guy, he kind of started the industry or he rebooted it in the eighties and he had one oyster that he had been growing the whole time in a cage that he called his pet. 
and it was like over a foot long. So they do, wow. they do get that big. Is this covered well enough by the press? These, these small, you know, are these, are examples like this covered enough in the press? I don't feel like I hear about this shit enough. I don't think so. I'm trying to do my part. Um, yeah. But yeah. There, uh, what can I do to, to start a mangrove uh, bog? Because <laughs> <laughs> can... mangroves kind of suck, right? Like no, just from an awesome. aesthetic scene. Oh no, they're are... beautiful. They're like magical little like avatar worlds of like fish like darting about and these big roots going into the. Into yeah, the I remember. Yeah, but one. if you want to like hang out in one, it kind of sucks, right? I don't know. Oh, take, a right. boat, take a boat through it and be like, that's tight, and then just leave them be. That doesn't seem that You bad. know what? I'm basing everything I know about mangroves on one episode of Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls that I saw. <laughs> and he was like, this sucks. Well, I know I Bear Grylls doesn't like them. Are mangroves that's better exact, than Bear Grylls thinks they are? That's entirely right. I'm asking every possible ignorant question of Peter that I possibly can get. Peter. Well, I'm glad I hired lawyers, lawyers before I came on to this um, to protect myself against your guys' lawsuit when you lose thousands of followers because I'm talking about existential dread and no, this is no, this no. Is like, I like this. This is the good <laughs> shit. Honestly, like we do this when it's about like the fucking NBA playoffs. Like it's nice to have it actually be grounded in something that makes sense here, instead of me being like every time I look at the Clippers, I just think about dying. <laughs> like it's, it's better than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do though. They're a bummer. There was one other thing that I I was curious about, which was the because there are a lot of different uh, proposals out there many of them bad about things that we can actively do like sun blotting, which doesn't sound very good or going to Mars with Elon Musk, which also mm. sounds really shitty. Um, but then I feel like there are uh, alternative ways of po- uh, potentially harvesting uh, CO2 out of the atmosphere that might sound more plausible. Can you yeah. tell me about any that are, that are worth uh, exploring that are being explored as we speak? Yeah. So first to address the, uh, the Mars thing, because this yeah, has kind of been a, a personal bugbear of mine for a while. Like I've made this point before that like, um, even at the height of uh, the worst mass extinctions ever, like uh, the 15 minutes to an hour after the asteroid hit, it was a nicer day on Earth than it was today on Mars. Yeah. Like it's Mar- an, there was it's a ridiculous thing. Animal- it's all yeah. sci-fi on them. Yeah. Like an- we know that because animals survived uh, the asteroid impact animals wouldn't survive 15 minutes on Mars. There's no oxygen. There's lethal radiation. You have to live underground. It's a horrible, horrible place. So that's not, I think like, it's cool that we're exploring it kind of. Um, I feel like we should invest more in studying this place. Um, but I don't want to, I know a lot of people in kind of planetary sciences, so I won't go too far down that road. Uh, and the, the blocking the sunlight stuff is like borderline suicidal as a, as a species. Um, just cause I mean, I know people who study that too, uh, but you, so in some of these mass extinctions, you both put a lot of CO2 into the air and you put the same sorts of sunlight blocking uh, stuff into the air at the same time. So it's thought that there are these crazy swings between cold and warm. Um, and if we stop putting up these sunlight blocking aerosols uh, at any point in the next few thousand years, like you'll get, and you don't draw CO2 down, you're going to get a big warming spike. So I talked to this one geologist who's like, if we can not make our situation more like a mass extinction, that would be great. And I'm sort of yeah. on board with that. Um, <laughs> the, like the ultimate in like the wrestling term is like working yourself into a sheet. <laughs> yeah. The idea of just like figuring out, like just being like, we came up like totally. Newt Gingrich came up with a way to uh, like hasten a mass extinction event. It's a fix. It's, to- it's totally the, um, uh, 
let's bring in the gorillas to eat the lizards and the Simpsons sort of situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there are, there are natural kind of uh, CO2 drawdown techniques. One of the more interesting ones is, so I talk about in the book how over hundreds of thousands of years, no matter how much CO2 we put into the air, eventually it's going to react with rocks and it's going to be buried as limestone in the ocean. Like this is just a really long-term process that happens. Right, basalt. Yeah, right? so basalt's a really good uh, thing to uh, inject CO2 into and turn it into limestone. And that's exactly what like some people are trying to do right now. They're creating these technologies that are based on kind of earth science where you use rocks to permanently store CO2 by basically turning it into a different kind of rock, which if you wait long enough, the planet would do it all on its own. But um, because we're kind of an, an ingenious species, we figured out ways to kind of speed up that process. So that's one way. I think when people hear about these CO2 drawdown techniques, they kind of uh, think of it as a get out of jail free card. And it really isn't that because like under no uh, projection where even CO2 uh, sequestering technology takes off, do you not also have to basically plummet CO2 emissions at the same time? So it's not either or. We have to do both at the same time, but um, at some point we're going to probably have to figure out how to draw it out of the air too. Are you personally I, I, optimistic about things? Sorry, Roth. No, go ahead. I, th I don't know. I kind of just blur my eyes over the next few centuries because I think they might be a little rough, but I think if we can get through... Um, then there could be great things in store. It's sort of one of those things where it's like if alien technology, if aliens are visiting us, then they probably have gotten through this bottleneck um, of civilization where there are not these tribal psychopaths like we are, and they've come to kind of live long term in a on on their own planet before they visited ours. And I kind of feel like we're at a similar bottleneck where, depending on what we do in the next few decades, either we're just going to be really stupid and we'll just be this weird kind of phenomenon in Earth history, or you know, we can figure it out. And if we get through it, then maybe there are great things in store. But uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know if optimism is the right word because it's like, I think no matter what, there's going to be a lot of challenges in the next century because we're kind of going into <laughs> uncharted territory. I was going to say, I can see why you like to spend time uh, just going out and looking at rocky outcroppings, <laughs> yeah. reading, them, reading them like a book. Yeah. Like, well, this is all... It's all really pretty insignificant because, man, the idea of a couple of rough centuries when we're already fucking trying to tear each other apart over <laughs> right. like nothing much is exactly yeah. yeah. That's what really does worry me is like we've seen so little stress so far, and things already seem like the rivets seem to be popping a little bit. Given like what's coming down the pipe, like it kind of makes me a little nervous. But I don't know. I'm not sure that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to take it very well. <laughs> Just in general, I think that she's she's maybe wound a little tight. Yeah. for that sort of thing. Right. She'll deal. Fuck her. Yeah, she'll, I, she'll actually be fine. She's in very good physical shape, so she might be around for all of these difficult centuries. Just yeah, helping yeah. out. Yeah. She's doing chin-ups. She's self-reliant. She can yeah, pull herself out of the kipping. lava. Yeah. Uh, is that the note to end on? We're going to take the break now, and we're really going to oh, just boy. end on Marjorie Taylor Green doing pull-ups? Yeah, well, we were, right. we were going to talk about something else was going to go extinct, namely the Boston Celtics. Ah! Oh, there he is. Ah, not, arguing, not arguing with that. Uh, no, we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk about fun stuff. We'll be right back. And now we're back. All right, you want to play Dead or Cancelled, Peter Brandon? Uh, sure. All right, we are. Uh, this is Dead or Cancelled. The rules are, uh, I give you a person's name. You tell me whether they're dead or cancelled. If they're both, dead wins out. You got it? They're both dead wins out. Okay. 
All right, tell me whether this person is dead or canceled. Al Gore, is Al Gore dead or canceled? <laughs> Al Gore is not dead. He's canceled, though. Is that right? I knew he, he had is. The, I knew he had the sketchy massage stuff a few years ago. What's going on? Yes. Yes, he is. Okay. He, uh, people last week, we said Fred Savage was canceled, and they wanted, they were like, when, when was he canceled? And, and I had to, we had to show them the link to the CNN story about how he was accused of sexual harassment on the set, and uh, really, really sexual assault. So, so. I just want I just want it clear that that Al Gore was also accused of sexual harassment. I believe yes, it was some hanky panky with mas- masseuses, a la Deshaun Watson. I agree. Yeah, he's not good. Although yeah. he's still kind of out there, right? Like, isn't he like yeah. whatever doing it doing the slideshow in Davos or whatever? He's got he's got a lower profile. And the word hanky panky, by the way, that was poorly used. I should not have used that. It was basically it, and also. Masseurs and masseuses. You're not supposed to use that word anymore either. So really, We're just scrapping the whole segment. Yes, it was. It was uh, sexual misconduct around professional physical therapists. There, that is how it should be phrased, and that is the way I would prefer to phrase it. So there you go. Your guy of the week. Would you like to remember a guy, Peter Brandon? I would love to. I was hoping we would do that. And you are a you are a uh, New England sports fan. So your guy of the week. It's Dino Raja. Who loves? Dino Rod. Do you remember him, Peter Brandon? He was a lone bright spot in the nadir of 90s Celtics when I was yeah. rooting for people like Blue Edwards and Todd Day. And then Hell yeah. Dino Raja came out of nowhere. And uh, I think he averaged like 19 points a game or something and made an all-star game, which for me, having like zero sports rooting success in my life, uh, just kind of made my year. So. Yeah, Blue Edwards, that is a guy. It's a period of time where you were wondering, is Larry Bird going to walk through that door? And your coach was repeatedly telling you, no. No, in he's, fact, not. he's not. And if he was, yeah. he'd be old and gray. As with, Dino Raja yeah. now looks even more Dino Raja-y than he did as a player, which I think is fantastic. Like, he looks like he looks like Pete Townsend if Pete Townsend wasn't <laughs> famous. It's really just <laughs> beautiful. I really do like saying Do you remember that. anything about him as a type of player, Peter? I remember him as a basketball card that I got, and I was like, huh, cool, Dino Raja. Like, I don't think I can recall anything he did. He was big, right? He was like a yeah. Dario Saric, but better. Yeah, he had, like, zero, zero flair at all. Um, and there was nothing particularly, outs- like, outstanding about his game, but he somehow just gridded out the, the like a decent stat line um just a blue collar celtic yeah which yeah, when you're when like your other alternative is over the hill xavier mcdaniel like it was a it was nice that <laughs> <laughs> endeared him to the the flinty yeoman of new england they <laughs> yeah. were like i like how boring this guy is yeah that's right. really get you 18 points we, in an 11 point loss every we got, yeah. we got todd day in there too dino raja turned out to be a gateway drug to all sorts of guys in the guy universe i oh, liked yeah. that well there wasn't much consolation about being a I mean, no one wants to hear the crocodile tears of a Boston fan, but other than remembering guys from the 90s, there isn't much else to, to think about in Boston sports lore. Yeah, That's it was like, pretty lousy at that time. I think that you're like the last, I mean, I don't know how old you are, just, but I think this if you remember Dino Raja, then you're like the last generation of Boston sports fans that actually experienced disappointment yeah, as a right. regular thing. Oh, I came of age like in the 90s, so the 2000s were very dis- disorienting to me. Um, like my first memory of the Patriots was the one in 15 Hugh Millen season. And then we got Drew Bledsoe for like the next six years getting sacked. Um, so yeah, it was very, after 2001, everything kind of completely changed and the fan base changed in a way too. Um, not they all grew now. goatees. Yeah. Yeah. They exactly. all, there's always certain <laughs> fan bases and I, this, is not, this is not actually exclusive to Boston, 
where the fans establish their cred because they're like, well, I was there when they sucked for like <laughs> five years when I was a child. So yeah, like, like yeah. if you know anybody who grew up with the Mattingly Yankees, they will always, always pull that card, like without fail. Like, well, you know, there was that one stretch for 10 years where they didn't win a title. So, right. and I was very sad. And so, yeah. But it's the it's the peak of when sport is sports is meaningful to you. So like I think if you had done like an MRI of my brain during different sporting events in my lifetime, the Troy O'Leary game against Cleveland in the ALDS was probably like peak uh, dopamine levels for yeah. me in my entire life, and you know more so than any of the championships. That's, that's always just... how I think of it too. It's just a matter of what it has to share space with. Yeah. You know that like I'll never care about the Mets the way that I did when I was like. 12 or 13 because I have like other interests now. Yeah. yeah. Like, at, but it was like that moment before like the horny gland starts working <laughs> in your brain. And it's like the only thing that matters to you is yeah, like Kevin yeah. McReynolds figuring it out. <laughs> right, right. It's like, yeah, it's like a grim way to be, but it was, yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't want to care like that. Yeah. yeah once like, that, I care that about like 10 different things. Once no. that boner gland is activated, then, you know, everything else just gets it's over shoved <laughs> into a fucking box and just, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, I, I'm not. I, I'm only bringing up the Celtics getting rolled right now by the Nets in the playoffs. To so talk about the Nets because I, these have been very, very entertaining playoffs in contrast to the regular season, which was actually a real slog. But now there are fans back in the arenas, which is insane, and the games have been very, very entertaining. And yet, there's a market difference because the Nets, uh, uh, you know, they, it appears to me that they are. Go steamroll the rest of the Eastern Conference. The Lakers, who won, and I thought, I thought as soon as the regular season ended, because they rested everybody during this regular season, they would just turn it on, and even though they were seventh seed, just basically blast through the West. That has not occurred. So it seems to me that there is a distinct uh, difference between the teams that went far in the bubble and you know were playing important games as recently as fucking October, and teams that did not have to do that. Roth, do you agree? I do. I think that the the rest thing is is obviously meaningful. I also think that like the you can see it with the Clippers too struggling the way that they are. Like I think it's really difficult to have a basketball team that's good where you're not where the guys are not playing together regularly. Like there's such a thing as them playing too much and being worn out and that obviously makes sense. Right. If the team made a deep run, but you can see with the Clips like they just kind of thought I think that like, you know, if you pace it out and you do the load management thing that eventually you just throw Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George out there and they'll figure it out. And they haven't like this, no. this, there's no juice. Like they're not, they don't really seem to know what they're doing together on the floor, which makes it that much more amazing that the nets are like, and the Celtics I know had like a difficult end of the season and Peter can speak to that more than me, but like they're still pretty good. And the nets are just absolutely thumping them. And yeah. that's a, you know, and Harden and Durant and Kyrie still really haven't played that much together. So, like, that makes it that much more remarkable to me. Like, to see how the Lakers are scuffling, to see how the, the Clippers are looking with this, where they really did try to, like, pump the brakes and just kind of coast downhill through the season. Like, you have to be really good to do that and then have it work when you know, and then get the engine to turn over in the playoffs. I think, uh, you know, if, if, if it turns out that they win the title after Durant left Golden State, uh, and sort of established the Nets as his new beachhead. Because when he won the title with the Warriors, you know, it was him essentially carpetbagging, even though he had, you know, he played a massive, massive role in the title. Um, but now he, he'll, th that he could suffer that injury against the Raptors, 
take a year off, come back and win a title with the Nets, I think would be just fucking astonishing. I really do. I thought, oh, yeah. but Harden or not, I think it would be just an incredible accomplishment. And Are you sad about the Celtics going out like this, Peter? Does it bother you? Or is this just like you're just writing the whole season off as kind of like fluky and weird? I mean, it's. I was almost like borderline frustrated that they made it through the play-in series because I knew I would just get like conscripted into watching four very bad games of, a, of so like, much of that on our staff you should hear how people talk about the wizards like yeah. after they finally won and got a berth everybody's like oh my god are you fucking serious like yeah so i mean it's great if you want to see uh romeo langford garbage time minutes yeah. or watch the celtics get destroyed um which it sounds like you guys do based on what yeah. i from your last uh, <laughs> few podcasts I mean, i'm not turning it down yeah yeah um but yeah i mean the, the nets i don't and it's not just because we're getting crushed by them, but I really don't think they're beatable. Cause it's like you do your best to cover like the all century team passing the ball around. And then Joe Harris is wide open in the corner. Yeah. And, like it's just. Un- yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and the other guys, like you'd think like that that's, it's such a steep drop off to like Joe Harris and like, you know, fossilized Blake Griffin and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. But like, they don't really need them to do very no. much. Or, and like the, Harris like, will get open shots if he hits them. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know what you do. Or like the once in a, super blood moon eclipse game from jeff green where he like remembers that he's like the best basketball player ever like that'll happen like even if no one else was playing well so that's like the 90s where the jordan bulls would like like they'd be you know they'd struggle for a second and they'd go on a 27 run with all their like all their bench players playing like they would somehow have and when that happens you're like you throw your hands up and you're like well fuck well, it's I, the most yeah. helpless yeah. I've ever felt as a yeah. fan, as a New Jersey absolutely... Nets fan, yeah. when they would get those series. And it's just like getting carved by like BJ Armstrong. <laughs> you're like, you're not even the good one, dude. Like, stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it yeah. sucks to get absolutely owned by an otherwise average player. That's never fun. Hey, do you want to answer some fun bag questions, Peter Brandon? Sure. All right. This is from Will. Will writes in, what do you think the Cleveland Indians should change their name to? And please, earnest answers only. We could easily say, like, the Cleveland Joe Boos. Ha, 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 ha. And that gets real tired real quick. So what <laughs> if you and I, I'm still of the mind that, that the Indians are planning to never change their name and are just going to oh, yeah, they're gonna slow it like forever. The, but like WFT. let's go ahead and suggest earnestly some, some ideas to them, Peter Brandon. Um. So I spent some time in Cleveland and wrote about it in my book because it's kind of an unassuming fossil wonderland, which you, you might think that fossils are just out there in the desert. But um, if you go to like the Vienna Natural History Museum or most natural history museums all over the planet, you will see these incredibly scary, armored, heavily armored uh, fish that were like the size of buses. And they had these self-sharpening guillotine blades for teeth. And almost all of the specimens are taken from the riverbanks of Cleveland, like the same, <laughs> the, the same rivers that were like caught catching on fire in the seventies. Um, and I feel like Cleveland doesn't embrace its paleontological heritage enough. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the name of these creatures is Dunkelosteus, which is just a horrible <laughs> name. And it, it's totally unusable as a sports mascot name, but if there's some way to, I don't know, uh, make a logo out of these. I mean, just look them up They're They're the only animal that a paleontologist has described to me as being evil, which, uh, wow. Ooh. yeah. It's nice to know that the problem of naming fish, which remains like an eternal one that is ongoing to this day, like goes all the way back. Where like, when you're getting the, like sort of Latinate names of animals that have <laughs> yeah. been extinct for a long time. It's like the same thing as there being like a bony eared ass oh, fish yeah, right. out there in the seas these days. We're just yeah, like, they have- yeah. They have terrible names. Like birds have beautiful names, like the red crested oh tis mouse, and then, 
And the fish is like, that's a good. Like, yeah, they, oh, it's a shit yeah. bass. <laughs> they call it a shit bass. That's its name. <laughs> like, it just sucks. Like, there's, that, one called, there's one called the sarcastic. What is it? It's like the sarcastic earfish or something. They're just bizarre. Yeah. It's t- I mean, at least the blobfish, you know, does, does what it says on the packaging. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Like, uh, really I, delivers. Yeah. So Cleveland, would say, Cleveland Dunkleosteus is, is horrible, but like if there's some way to do something with that, I don't know. it would be weird. I mean, I think that would be cool, but also like the idea of giving like an aquatic themed name to a team that literally <laughs> plays in the middle of the country is like it's yeah. a, it's a stretch. <laughs> it's not Utah Jazz, right? But it's like in the same sort of order of things. Yeah, that's bold. The one that that I can endorse, although the actual fans that I, Cleveland fans I know don't really like it, is it like the. Cleveland Spiders right. uh, was like, that was the team before they got their stupid fucking racist mascot and new name. But uh, but they sucked. That was like the worst team in the history of, of baseball. So that's a problem. But I think Spiders are kind of cool, you know? like Yeah, Spiders are cool. And they shouldn't but, be, it shouldn't just be the University of Richmond that gets the nickname itself, the Spiders. Like, that's a cool thing to be. Like, there, I feel like there are a lot of underused, very, very simple mascot names that don't get used because everyone like you know college is all tigers and bulldogs which is fucking annoying and then i don't even know like what pro sports teams are thinking when you know when the houston texans are the houston texans like i don't that's just like absolutely phoning it in (laughs) right there that's like like if a book ran with like title tk on the cover that's basically houston Texans. absolute total shit mick writes in uh peter People love it when a short guy dunks in the NBA or when a fat guy scores a touchdown in the NFL. But is there an equivalent in baseball? Is it, a pit, is it when a pitcher hits a home run? What is the equivalent so, to either of those two yeah. things in baseball? I thought of this a little bit, and um, I think it's when a – I won't say fat. I'll say a, a, a man of a more avoir du poids, perhaps, uh, <laughs> decides to steal a base. Um, Ooh, that's a good answer. Yeah, because I feel like Ooh. it's treated with the same sort of like patronizing, like, oh, isn't that cute from the like announcers when it happens. And I actually watched like some clips of Prince Fielder and David Ortiz doing it. And it definitely kind of tickled the same parts of my brain as watching like an offensive lineman run 98 yards with a fumble. Yeah, yeah I, I've I definitely like... seen some some like Wilson Ramos. I remember watching <laughs> steal a base for the Mets. It was like a mistake. It was like a blown hit and run. But he looked as surprised as anybody else. Right. It's like a dog standing on its hind legs. Just totally gratifying <laughs> yeah. in that yeah. way. Also, uh, pitch when a pitcher at home run could count if the pitcher is fat. So uh, the Bartolo Colon one, which remains legendary to this day, it's almost too rare. Uh, so the fat guy stolen base, I I think I like that quite quite a bit. Troy writes in. Uh, how do you think farm, fava bean farmers felt when the sounds of the lambs came out? Do you think they were happy about that, <laughs> Peter Brannon? Uh, I mean, any publicity is good publicity. I'm sure the I think so too. I'm sure the llama bean people were like, "Where was our our PR guy? Like, drop the ball." <laughs> Because this because fava, fava beans taste good and lima beans taste like shit. That's why. <laughs> but also, fava beans are a difficult bean. Like, I worry that it's the sort of thing where a lot of people were like, "Oh, that sounds cool. Like, I'll eat a, a liver and fava beans. I'll make that at home." <laughs> You know, liver, if you don't cook it right, it gets very metallic. And then fava beans, you got to, there's like four different sheaths. It's like the, basically like, whatever. If you were like reverse engineer what happened to John Hurt in Alien, like at some point, that process is the same as cooking fava beans. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds too complicated. I'd I love them. them. It's just hard. We've cooked them at home, like dried ones. You know, you reconstitute them, you cook them, you take the skin off and stuff. By the time you get to it, you're like a little resentful. I don't do the whole, like the whole rinsing of beans things where you get like soak them overnight. I just get them out of a can. I don't do that. I can't. Oh, I like doing that. It's You get a little more control over how it's going to come out. But again, this is something that 
I really strongly embraced during quarantine when it's like, what was the alternative there? Oh, what was I going to do? Like, I could soak some beans. I had time for the shit. I actually soaked them in a movie theater while, <laughs> while I was watching Cars too. Uh, this is your last email of the week. Peter, this is from Chris. He says, a buddy of mine is a private investigator attorney with a client who, while on a high ladder, fell onto an uncapped metal roof and cut all eight fingers clean off at the hand. That <gasps> shouldn't say all eight. I mean, because you, you have ten fingers. Anyway, Thumbs. cut eight fingers clean off at the hand. The fingers were reattached, and he was fine in the end. I'm going to put the fine in quotation marks there. My question is, if you were the surgeon, you were handed eight severed fingers in the OR, What's the chance you would reattach each one of them in their correct original location? I think I might mistake a ring, a ring finger for an index finger or put a pinky on the wrong hand. Could you do it, Peter? I mean, the chance of me doing it correctly are extremely low. I would like to think that for surgeons, uh, kind of have some ways of figuring this out. But There'd be a higher level of attention to detail <laughs> no, than yeah. in the independent journalist community. <laughs> it, yeah. it has to be you, Peter Brand. You, it can't be, you can't magically transform it, it has into to an be me. User. I think I would get confused. I'd like look at my own or like look in the mirror and like somehow reverse them all or something. And It's literally what I just did <laughs> while, while the question was being read. Yeah. yeah, I think the danger is not... Like, I think I could get them in in order of size because, well, if I'm going by my hand, the middle finger is the longest, then the ring finger is the next tallest, then the index finger, and then the pinky finger. The problem is which hand. Like, if you severed my, if you severed my, uh, my right middle finger and my left middle finger, and you asked me to identify which hand they belong to, I don't think I could do that. If you if you did reverse them all, you could like throw in an amazing screwball or something. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's what it. Like, Look just, out, Tim Wakefield. Yeah. That's gonna be the next big thing. I mean, we're already putting cadaver yeah, uh, ligaments right. in people's elbows. Why wouldn't you just go with like the all <laughs> ring finger hand? Peter, this is a fabulous conversation, and I would like to uh, talk to you more again about uh, about the uh, about the Earth. I like talking about Earth. It's very, very enjoyable. Will you come on? Same again for sometime? me, but uh, but with Todd Day. Yes, yeah. that's right. I'm happy to talk Todd Day, the X Man, Ed Pinkney, or the, or the End Permian Mass Extinction, if you want. So, oh, Ed Pinkney. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, uh, the book is The Ends of the World by Peter Brand. It's available everywhere bookstores are or it's everywhere right. books are sold. And uh, and Peter's uh, Twitter handle is PeterBrandon1, at PeterBrandon1. Uh, Brandon is spelled B-R-A-N-N-E-N. Uh, Brandon Nix is our producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. Thanks to Roth and me and Peter Brandon. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget to rate review and subscribe wherever it is that you listen and go subscribe to defector.com to while you're at we could always use your business It'd be a pleasure to have you on the site peter brandon thank you Thanks, thank you man. roth we will see you next week goodbye everybody bye